Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe. Tales of your very favorite and most beloved disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly and stay safe. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. Well, I tried. Well, what happened? Um, I finally pulled out this fancy microphone and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) It didn't sound quite right. It didn't sound quite right. I'm going to have to... I don't know. We're we're learning this from the ground. We didn't do classes or anything like that. We no everything no podcast classes for us. Nope. So I don't know. I'll wiggle around with it this week and <laughs> maybe next week we can try again. I'll wiggle around with it. That has gotta be my new favorite catch all way of saying that you will address or troubleshoot something. <laughs> you can apply that to anything. I don't know. I'll wiggle around with it and see. <laughs> I'll wiggle around with it and then hopefully next week because I mean these things aren't cheap. Please can we make that a thing? Wiggle around? Yeah. Absolutely. We're gonna have to wiggle around with my voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately it's my week so you guys are stuck listening to this for at least an hour. Um I have a head cold. I'm fine. It's not that deep. I just sound shitty. It's the weather change. Maybe. Is it cold there? Is it cold there still in Indiana? Um, Yesterday it was shorts weather. Today it's 47, which is like less than 10 degrees colder than it was yesterday. But yesterday felt like it's time to go grill something. And today feels like it's time to make chili. So I can't explain that. Um, I don't know. Personally, I think it's the fact that my kid is on like her 77th cold in the past two months. Ah, it's the um, worst. Yeah, I, I got lucky for several. I've been uh, taking elderberry gummies like I bought them from a dispensary, and it is only doing so much. <laughs> yeah, we've had to mow our lawn twice already. It's been like 75 and oh, sunny here. Bullshit. But I don't know. It's kind of worth it for the weather. Yeah, we're we're already doing like the sprinklers on the trampoline and all that stuff. Oh, my. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're that's that's not the vibe here today at least. But before long it's going to be like you can't even go outside because of the humidity. So Yeah. This is kind yeah. of our like nice summer, early summer feeling here. All right. Well, maybe we should jump into our topics uh so while I still have voice so you can enjoy your window of good weather while you still can. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So this week I really like this one. Okay. Tires versus Fresh cut lumber. Oh, fresh cut lumber all day, every day. All day, every day. I mean, tired, they, they smell good, but it's whatever. Lumber, dude, I'm a handy woman. You don't know about me. I kind of want to push you down right now. Why? Because last week was eucalyptus versus <laughs> fucking pine. And this is very similar to me. It's not the same, though. All right. But the... Wood Isle at Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot. By the way, do you have a favorite big box uh, hardware store? As long as they have lighting, that's my happy place. I love. I know, I know about you and lighting. I love strolling down like the lights. We actually went 
yesterday to Lowe's because I am redoing the closet under my steps to make a cat condo. Well, of course you are. You're adorable. For the kitty condos. So went to pick up a couple of things there yesterday. But yeah, the lights. I love the lights. But the wood too. The wood's great. The wood. Yes. Dude, I hate shopping. And I am, I mean, I may be a lesbian, but I'm a femme lesbian all the way. But get me with some tools and some lumber in a hardware store. And you're going to see a side come out you've never seen before. <laughs> and now that it's spring, I want to build some stuff so bad. It, yeah, this this is not sprinkler season for me. This is build a deck season for me. I want to crack really open a beer a and build. watch you build stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, that works. <laughs> I cannot believe we just picked fresh cut lumber. Enthusiastically. I thought for sure it was going to be tires. Wrong. All right. Wrong. I have no idea what you're doing today. Really? Really. Oh, okay. Well, I am doing the thing that I put on pause to do cruise ship medicine, my last episode, that I was working on. I mean, for me, working on just kind of means thinking real hard about for the first little while, um, which is Mount Everest. (gasps) And I will tell you right now, there it'll be you and probably 50 other people who are like, but what about this Everest story? Listen. I can't put every ever story in here. No, it's okay. And there are a lot of really major ones, like really major ones, like George Mallory, that would be an episode unto themselves. Right. So I can't really put them into something like this, but it's a pretty, I don't want to say a juicy episode because that feels disrespectful because a lot of people die, but I'm excited about it. It's thick. It's thick. See, we can't say we between us we call it meaty boys, but we definitely stole that from Let's Go to Court. Yeah. So we can't say that here. <laughs> it is though. All right. So you want to jump into it? Let's do it. All right. The draw of something like summoning Mount Everest is hard for most people to understand. It's very hard for me to understand. The potential climbing season is short, with most of the 800 or so climbers who attempt to climb to the mountain every year attempting it in April or May, as they attempt to work around months that are simply too inhospitable, with wildly mercurial temperatures and months plagued by monsoons, leaving the whole mountain covered in fog and mist. The sheer scale of the mountain makes it hard to visually comprehend. At a distance, it looks like a hypothetical, like a landscape. You can't even understand it. Your brain doesn't right. get it necessarily. And up close, it fills your field of vision so completely that you can only take in the tiny, tiny piece of it that's in front of you. And there are so many metaphors for life in there that I don't even know where to start, <laughs> which could apply to most things involving Everest, to be honest. The mountain itself is estimated to be between 50 and 60 million years old, but it was uncharted and undisturbed for most of that time. The first climbers attempted the trek in the early 1900s. In 1922, a British group attempted an expedition representing the first known attempt to reach the summit. Thirteen men with useful background knowledge, including George Mallory, along with 150 porters. The attempt was abandoned after seven porters died in an avalanche. They had failed to reach the top, and they had lost lives in the process, becoming the first known deaths on Everest. But they did set a world record by reaching 27,320 feet in their climb, which was very near the top. Now that is a whole 
very interesting story. And I do think that people may want to hear that, but it's too big of a story to put in here. Right. Um, so if you guys want more, let me know because I could probably do an episode just on George Mallory and that expedition. We're not going to get into that anymore in this one, but there's a lot there. You want more? She'll give you more. Yeah, because I'm the top. <laughs> <laughs> what now? Climbing Everest is expensive in many ways, but let's start with actual money. Do you have any idea how much it costs to climb Everest? No. Okay. To even for, do you have a guess? I mean, probably in the tens of thousands, I would guess. Just probably with like so. equipment and all that stuff. And Well, to even proceed at all, you will need a permit, which will cost you around 10 grand. The supplies and assistance needed will cost another ten to seventy thousand dollars. Jesus, yeah. So we're we're talking twenty twenty thousand absolute bare bones, eighty thousand if you want to go all out. It's fuck you money. It's yeah, it's a lot. Uh, generally, being independently wealthy is not the way up the mountain for most would be climbers. It is sponsorship. Climber searched for sponsors with one I read in an interview from saying that he contacted 2,000 companies before landing a sponsor. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes a documentary may pay you to film on the way up. Uh, other times you may land a book deal and accompanying sponsorship from that. It does help if you're going for some kind of gimmicky first, like the first to do it like this or the first to do it like that. First of your age or sex or nationality. Those are people that companies are usually interested in funding. Um, Mount Everest.net's primer on securing funding for an expedition writes, quote, The last and most important part is to give back to your sponsors. Under promise and over deliver. Too many failed expeditions also fail their sponsors. Return gear for lending fast and neat. Prepare some speeches and take nice sponsor pictures. It is truly a whole process with its own etiquette, and I won't lie, there are some insufferable levels of privilege in this subculture. Right. Oh my God. It's unreal. Reading about it. I came across a lot of people saying that if you just cut out your avocado toast or your morning Starbucks, anyone can do it. And every reason that you have for not climbing Mount Everest is an excuse, which respectfully shut the fuck up. Yes, please. Yes. Um, first of all, no, that's not how life works. And second of all, my excuse for not climbing Mount Everest is I don't want to die. And I don't want to climb and I don't want to do any of that. So <laughs> if that's an excuse, there it is. <laughs> climbers are assisted by Sherpas, locals who make their money escorting climbers up the mountain that they consider sacred and carrying their excess belongings. Now, this definitely used to be a situation where it was like the only work or not the only work, but a lot, you know, majorly one of the only things that you could do. If you live there and you wanted to make money for your family, there are definitely more options at this point, but for some people, you know, they want to, and it can be lucrative. A writer for National Geographic said that the job, quote, can encompass not just the duties of a guide and porter, but also those of a butler, a motivational coach, and a lifeguard. Sounds fun. Not at all. The word Sherpa refers to both their ethnic group and their job. Currently, the record five-year standing for the most times an individual has summited Everest is held by a 53-year-old Sherpa who has reached the top 26 times. Wow. Yeah, including twice in one month. And despite their staggering accomplishments, they're very rarely acknowledged, and they are usually omitted from climbing documentaries even when they were present and assisting the whole time. Why is so that? Kind of, why do you think that? Oh. Yeah. It's because they're not white. 
Yeah, I forget. And they don't speak English. And they're not glamorous. Well, I mean, sometimes they do, but, you know, not necessarily. And they're not glamorous. Um, it's kind of one of those situations, like, in a reality show about celebrities, you don't see the nannies, but they're there the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. I personally would like a documentary on Sherpas more. Oh, me the hell, too. Me the hell, too. Uh, having lived and worked in the mountains for generations, their bodies have usually largely adapted to the atmosphere and oxygen changes, which is not to say that it's easy for them. It is absolutely not. It's just the oxygen and pressure and stuff. It's not quite as rough on them, but it's still climbing freaking Mount Everest. In their experience and wisdom and in light of the fact that they are paid for speed, Sherpas don't typically take the same safety precautions as guests, including helmets and rope. And they do sometimes die on the job. In fact, a majority of the 300 plus people who've died on Everest have been Nepalese porters and Sherpas. Occasionally, this is where the uh, Sherpa reality show comes into play. Occasionally, interpersonal conflicts break out between groups, as they would anywhere. In particular, there was something in 2013 that would be referred to as the Everest Brawl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, three big shot European climbers decided to attempt to climb without the assistance of Sherpas. However, I mean, obviously they did still want to benefit from the labor of Sherpas. They just didn't want to like pay Sherpas right. or have to acknowledge their contributions or anything. They did want to utilize the ropes that the guides had put in place for their customers, which they were asked not to. The Sherpa team was in the process of fixing ropes one day in 2013, which is an enormous undertaking that requires a lot of precision and focus where a small error can lead to catastrophic outcomes. The three European men were being filmed for a climbing documentary, which turned into an entirely different kind of documentary when this happened. The Sherpas saw the three men and their team ascending, and they tried to use radios to find out who they were, what their deal was, why they were there, but they didn't get a whole lot of information. They asked the men to stop due to the risk of falling ice and the delicacy of the task that they were working on, but they didn't stop. And in fact, they continued climbing using those very ropes that they were just asked not to. Oh, the entitlement. Uh-huh. But they told the Sherpas it was fine. They were cool. They wouldn't disturb them. They would take an alternate path. So they let them pass using their ropes, which in my opinion was awfully nice of them. Um, they continued and eventually they were disturbing ice so that it fell down and hit one of the Sherpas in the face. Oh, fuck no. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, according to the Sherpas, the Europeans became confrontational and aggressive, shoving them and trying to buy their way past that point. You can't shove someone in the chest 20,000 feet up on a mountain. No. It's just, you know, you can't do that. One of the three climbers used language that was described as abusive, and another seemed to threaten a Sherpa with his pickaxe. Punches were thrown, and the European team ended up squaring up with one to two hundred Sherpas. Oh, they fuck around Uh, and found out. They fucked around, they found out. And let me tell you, if you listen to the media coverage about this, it is disgusting. It is a bunch of old white dudes saying, well, back in the golden days of climbing, this would never have happened. Three nice, innocent climbers had to flee a pack of angry Sherpas for their lives. Oh, my gosh. It's, it is infuriating. I'm giving the biggest eye roll right now. Uh-huh. The two groups have been through rocks at each other. And things escalated to the point that a lot of news sources said it was surprising no one was killed. Journalists swarmed the site, and they were absolutely not interested in interviewing the non-English-speaking Sherpas. And as far as the 
media saying that the European men were just attacked by hundreds and hundreds of Sherpas and they had to flee the mountain in fear of their lives. One of them who was interviewed said, quote, that's false. If Sherpas had really wanted to kill them, would they be alive now? Exactly. Right? I love that. (laughs) Now, as far as surviving the climb, no other mountain has a track record quite like Everest in good ways and bad ways. There are 14 with a summit higher than 8,000 meters. That is almost five miles. And these are called the 8,000ers. Depending on how you look at it, Everest track record is either a lot better or a lot worse than the others. Over 310 climbers have died on Everest, which is well over double K2, the runner-up for total deaths. But the percentage of ascents ending in deaths, which from 1950 to 2012 was 3.9%, isn't nearly as bad as most of the others, particularly K2 at 26%. Oh, wow. And an Annapurna one at 31%. There's not an exact number of Everest deaths, but we do have names for over 300, and we will touch on a few of those today. So there are a few different legs to the journey, which will take five or six weeks if it's successful, in part so that your body has time to adapt to the changing oxygen availability and air pressure, uh, not unlike ascending slowly to avoid the bends when you're scuba or saturation diving. Turns out that... Oh, I was going to say, I, I've said it once, I'll say it again, the term legs for any type of trip or journey is still fucking weird to me. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, I can't disagree with that. Um, at that point, your body's survival needs and basic homeostasis and the environment are in constant conflict. Supplemental oxygen is almost mandatory, but according to one filmmaker quoted by Insider, even with it, the lack of oxygen can make you feel like you're, quote, running on a treadmill and breathing through a straw. Rock, yeah, Rocks and ice that are sometimes the size of cars will randomly fall down the sides of the mountain. Retinal hemorrhages are a thing that happen at high altitude, which is bleeding in the back of your eye that's similar to what happens to shaken babies and car accident Ugh. victims. The wind can get strong enough to blow your ass clear off the side of the mountain sometimes. The... First 800 meters are no picnic, but the final 848 are what it all comes down to. Once they get there, a lot of people feel like they're home free, but nothing could be further from the truth. If a climber makes it that far, they reach what is called the death zone, where their body's ability to survive with limited oxygen is pushed to sometimes beyond the limit. In the death zone, the thin air controls your every decision and every thought as you fight delirium and fight death. A lot of people also experience something researchers refer to as summit fever, which is an almost compulsive drive to complete the climb once you're so close to the end. David Sowers, writing for 1012 Industry Report, says, quote, The climber has invested time, energy, and resources into their goal, and by the time they have the summit of the mountain in their sight, they are so close to accomplishing the feat that they allow their judgment to be impaired. They make choices toward the top of the mountain they almost certainly would not have made earlier in their journey. Again, lots of life metaphors in there that may be a little uncomfy to examine too closely, yeah. but maybe that's just me. <laughs> um, so what will kill you on Everest other than everything I just said? Literally just about everything, but <laughs> here are some highlights. 29% of climbers who die on the mountain are killed by avalanches, 23% by falls, and 20% by exposure and mountain sickness. One terrifying aspect of the climb is something called crevices, which are what they sound like. Cracks all over the mountain, (laughs) and some of them are not little. Really, cracks. (laughs) Melanie, you should be sorry for that. (laughs) 
I love you though. Um, some are so big that you have to use a ladder to cross them. As you climb, the size of the crevices increases until you're laying multiple ladders end to end tied together to traverse individual cracks. Yeah, I don't think OSHA would like that at all. I don't think OSHA would. Maybe when you go to a seminar, you can ask them. The crevices sometimes collapse. I thought this sounded pretty terrifying until I watched a minute-long video taken by a climber named Matthew, one of the youngest people to ever complete the climb, crossing one. And I swear to you, I did not blink for that entire video. Is it like a sinkhole type deal? It's like, you know, when your cheesecake has a crack on the top? Yeah. The cheesecake is the mountain. The cracks are big enough to swallow you. Mm, mm, mm. Yep. So picture a big ass, deep ass crack in an icy mountain, and then picture laying an incredibly rickety metal ladder across it. Like, this looks like something your grandpa's had in his garage for 40 years. <laughs> you get it out and you set it up, and you're like, Are you sure about this? Um, that is what these look like. So that the ends where it's stabilized, like, you know, you're, you've got an end on each side of the crack. The ends are metal resting on fucking ice. Yeah. And then picture yourself walking upright across it. No, thank you. Yeah. No, you can't even like crawl. You walk across it. There are truly two kinds of people because I flat out could fucking never, (laughs) never. But don't worry, because according to Matthew, quote, I'd never climbed a horizontal ladder with crampons on before Everest, but feeling a little drunk on the lack of oxygen helped to ease any fears. Oh my gosh. This, this seems fine. Also, I had never heard of crampons before. As much as it sounds like a period product, it's basically shoes with spikes on them. So you may Same be crossing. Thing. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's fair. It feels like crampons stepping in a uterus when you're on your period. Um, so you may be crossing that rickety metal ladder, balanced precariously on ice, wearing icy metal murder cleats. And let me tell you, it does not make it look one bit more stable. He said murder cleats. I like that. Murder cleats. Google them. Look up crampons right now. I'm going to do it. Let's see. It's like tampons, but cramp at the beginning. Okay, yeah, that's definitely a a murder cleat. You want to walk across a ladder in a crevice wearing those, don't you? Oh, my goodness. Yep. And you can see Matthew's crampons in his video. They're not very expensive, surprisingly. It's a bargain. So I read an article partially about a couple called Shauna and Ben who attempted Everest in 2005. And it said that Shauna heard Ben scream her name and found that he, quote, had stepped on an errant piece of ice that sent him flying sideways. He nearly fell into a deadly crevice, but he stopped himself by wedging his elbows sideways. Mm. The fall snapped his tibia and fibula. His leg was at a 90 degree angle. Oh, he got evacuated and she kept climbing without him and reached the summit. (laughs) The article referred to him as her then partner. And I'm just saying (laughs) you have to wonder if that's why. I mean, listen, I kind of love it. (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't. Maybe he should have stayed in the kitchen and made her a sandwich. Okay, fair. Uh, okay, maybe he should have. You know what? That's a different take on this. <laughs> so, the big creepy fact that you probably know, if you have any background knowledge on this at all, is that if you die on the mountain, generally the mountain becomes your grave. 
Removing bodies is incredibly dangerous and incredibly cost prohibitive. There's no official count on how many bodies remain on the mountain, but we do know that it's at least 200. And that's two thirds of the people who've died there at all. Wow. Yeah. Once a climber is in the last leg of the journey before reaching the summit, it becomes a final push to the end where the air is so thin and the environment is so miserable that they have to shed heavy bags or excess equipment if they have any hope of reaching the top. Sending a recovery team into a place where even a backpack is too much to carry down, carrying down a corpse is just not realistic in most cases. And although some families try and succeed, it's understood to be a long shot. It's kind of sad when you think about it with them dropping, I mean, besides, you know, people dying there, but like the litter aspect Oh, the litter's a problem. The litter's a huge problem. And I mean, at this point, the bodies are being treated almost like litter, but it's it's all a huge problem. Right. In 1979, a German woman named Hannelore summoned with her husband and became unable to go on. She staggered to a camp area, collapsed just outside of it, saying water, and sat down against her backpack and died. She was only the fourth woman to summit Everest, and she was the first woman to die there. A Sherpa stayed with her body, losing fingers and toes himself. Her husband set a record on that climb as the oldest person to ever summit at age 50. I don't know what that record might be now. I meant to look that up because I'm kind of curious. You know what? I'm going to right now. Yeah, let's do it. Hold on. 80. Good God. Wow. Okay. Well, and yeah, in 79 and 50 was the record. So that's insanity. Um, her body stayed there for several years with her climbing suit looking normal and filled out. Like if you just looked at it from the neck down, it looks like she's just laid down. Um with her head being just a mummified skull with one shoulder exposed. Five years after her death, some climbers tried to recover her body, only to be blown off the mountain and killed as well. Her body remained for a while until it was eventually blown off the side of the mountain, so, you know, who in the world could possibly know where that is now? Um, So there's very much an understanding that close encounters with dead bodies are just part of the experience on Everest. Generally, climbers see them as a reminder of what can happen. Some treat them like nothing more than a mile marker. Oh, that's fucked up. Yeah, even almost a bit of a tourist thing for some, and some are upset, which it does seem to be a minority, but I did read one article about a climber who encountered what he thought was a fellow climber in need of assistance until he realized that someone had tied a plastic bag over the man's head so birds didn't peck out his eyes. And he was obviously not alive like that guy thought he right. was. Um, the Belgian climber who saw that would have summoned if he'd continued, but he was too shaken up and turned back. There are some really very unsettling sights on the mountain. Sometimes as you're crossing one of those crevices we talked about a minute ago, you look down and see corpses in the bottom. But it's hard to say for sure if they died there or were placed there. The BBC wrote, quote, Remains are usually committed to the mountain. That is, they are respectfully pushed into a crevice or off of a steep slope, out of sight. When possible, they might also be covered with rocks, forming a burial mound. But Dave Hahn, a mountain guy at RMI Expeditions who has reached Everest Summit 15 times, emphasizes, quote, The time to move a body is when the accident happens. Afterwards, not to get grotesque, but they become attached to the hill. Uh. Some climbers even issue advance directives asking that they not be recovered in the event of their deaths because they just, they're fine staying there. They don't want other people dying, trying to get them. They've just, you know, that's how they want it. Some purchase repatriation insurance. 
Uh, the logistics of the climb mean that sometimes it's hard to tell from a body's position whether they died in the last pit before reaching the summit or on their way down from the summit, which at times feels important to certain people because, you know, it's like, well, did they die trying or did they succeed and then die immediately after? And I think that can become meaningful to some people. So a lot of times there's really a search for a camera to see if there's a summit picture. There's a lot of interviews with fellow climbers to see if anyone saw them summit. They look at the summit and see if they left anything there. Um, that, that could be a thing. And I, I could see why the bodies don't decompose for the most part in the freezing air. One climber who did summit said in an interview quote, for the most part, everyone stays very positive. You don't talk about this stuff, but you can't help but notice the bodies because their clothes are still bright. You might see some bare flesh, but you won't see a skull as the skin is almost embalmed as if it's been frozen in time, almost like a waxwork. The clothes are flapping in the wind in ultraviolet light, each person with their own story. Wow. And it is true. I almost wish I hadn't, but I obviously looked at pictures. Um, I did find a picture of George Mallory, who disappeared in that first expedition in the 20s that was discovered in, I want to say, 99. And I mean, his skin looks like soap, like wax. It looks... It, you you would never know how long he'd been dead. Wow. You could look at that picture without, you know, any major knowledge and think he'd been dead for a month or something. Um, It's weird. I don't really know why the one lady whose head was mummified, I don't know why that was the case for her when it's not for so many others. Um, I don't know. In fact, one section is nicknamed, quote, Rainbow Ridge, but not for any possible pleasant reason. It is for the vibrant colors of the dead bodies' hiking suits that litter the area. Sometimes climbers have to get uncomfortably intimate with the bodies, especially in the case of one man who died in 96 and has not been definitively identified, but is known as Green Boots. His body was so brightly colored and conspicuously positioned that other climbers would have to step over his outstretched legs to climb. I can't fucking imagine. I just, I can't. Like, I... (sighs) I know. His body was finally able to be shifted out of the way in 2014, but it does remain on Everest. And that is actually a very notorious story. I'm not going to get into it any further because I found an interview with, um, gosh, I don't remember who it was. I think that it might've been the man's son. I don't know. I found an interview with someone close to the person that they think it was. And he said that the rest of his family doesn't know that the guy is so well known. Like if you type in green boots on Google, it's not going to pull up boots you can buy. It's going to pull up this guy. Right. It's, it's very notorious, but apparently he said that the family didn't know and he never wanted them to find out. And they were very upset that he was kind of seen as a landmark at this point. So I'm not going to get into that out of respect because they've kind of already, I don't think there's a need to like not discuss it at all because it is very much out in the world right. there are a thousand think pieces on it but i don't want to add to it more when i don't when the feel family like, is i don't know about i don't feel like we necessarily have their blessing to discuss that at length so i'm not going to obviously we can't always get their blessing to discuss that at right length. but it's if it's not reasonable but when we already know we kind of don't i'm not going to get into that right no and that's the way it should be yeah um one was 40-year-old Francis, who in 1998 
she wasn't all that serious about mountaineering life by normal mountaineering standards, but she was married to a man who was. He was a very majorly record-setting mountain climber. He had climbed a bunch of them. He was known as the snow leopard because he was so good at it. She was an accountant, but, you know, they they climbed together. Accountants can have a, fun, too. Uh, absolutely. I don't think she did have fun, but... <laughs> They decided to attempt the trip with no supplemental oxygen. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Why? Um, Why? I mean, I what year is this? 98? No. Yeah. I mean. It's about to get so much worse. You, you think know better by now? now. Oh, just you wait. So Francis had an 11-year-old son. Not to victim blame. That sounded very victim um, blaming, but it's just. It, it gets. There's a couple in here where it's hard not to entirely. It, this is a. I was thinking about that the whole time I was writing this episode. This is a very tricky one in terms of how to navigate victim blaming because when you are doing something like this, death, it is very much a risk that you assume. And it is something that you absolutely don't have to do. You are absolutely choosing to do. And there is every chance in the world you'll die a horrible death. And I mean, I'm not blaming them like judging them, but I mean, it's hard not to say that it is technically their fault. Right. Because, I mean, it is, you know, it's not like you're driving to work and you get in a car accident. It's not like your house burns down. You undertook a very extreme activity that had a very high risk of death because you wanted to. And, I mean, that is what it is. You know, I don't think that we need to be doing any victim shaming, but there's a difference. Yeah. yeah. Um, This one, it's it's hard. It's hard to stay out of both. (laughs) Um. She had an 11-year-old son named Paul, and Paul was a little freaked out about things. Uh, The day before her trip, they talked, and she told Paul that she was leaving it up to him whether she attempted the climb. Uh, (sighs) And he said, quote, if I tell you you can't go, then at some point you'll be an old lady in a rocking chair saying, dang, I should have done that. I don't want to be the one to take that from you. Right. That's so fucking unfair to put on a kid. Yeah. Well, then that night he went to bed and he had a nightmare about two climbers in a whiteout. And he said that it was like the snow was attacking them like bees. And he called and he told her that he'd changed his mind and he didn't want her to go. But she said, you know, Paul, we talked yesterday and you're right. I have to do this. So she did. Um, they went anyway. And it was clear to other climbers that Francis wasn't the single-minded mountaineer that some of them were. She spent time at some of the camps talking to the other climbers about her son and her life back in Colorado. Francis and her son, Sergio, did reach the summit, but they were sluggish with no oxygen tanks. And they did it later than is safe to do because they were moving so slowly because they, they were so unwell from the lack of oxygen. When they began their descent, they got separated. Sergio reached a lower camp and soon realized that his wife was not there. And then after a while realized that she was not arriving either. So he grabbed rescue supplies and he set out to find her, but someone else already had another group had found her delirious and frostbitten, unable to stand. They did all that they could for her, but they just didn't have the resources to bring her down the mountain. They stayed with her as she faded. Um, and she died and just the way she died and the way the elements affected her and her appearance in general, she was nicknamed Sleeping Beauty and treated as a landmark for nine years before she was covered up with an American flag. 
Uh, Sergio also died, falling to his death trying to reach Francis, leaving Paul without his mom or stepfather. His dad delivered the news. A BBC article says, quote, When Paul's dad sat him down on a sunny afternoon and delivered the news, Paul felt like he'd been hit with a sledgehammer. Yet he was hardly surprised. To be honest, I already knew, he says. When someone that close to you dies, it's strange and unexplainable, but you just know. One of the climbers who'd sat with her as she died returned nine years later to relocate her body. They finally found her covered in snow and spent five hours unearthing her body. The BBC writes, quote, After wrapping her stiff remains in an American flag and saying a few words, they sent her on her way, likely to the same place Sergio lies. Wow. That's yeah. heavy. It is. It's going to get heavier. <laughs> now, this brings us to a topic, which is where your obligation begins and ends if you run into a fellow climber in trouble. And there is somewhat of an etiquette around this. It's not really considered to be necessarily in poor form to leave a dying climber behind if there's nothing you can do to help. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't sometimes upset people, especially people outside of the climbing world when a death is publicized enough to reach those people, which is what happened in 2006. David Sharp was a 34-year-old climber who made a series of decisions preceding his attempt to summit Everest. In hindsight, they may have been questionable ones. He was an engineer who was months away from embarking on a new path as a school teacher and was known to be a really good climber, although his lack of body fat held him back sometimes because that you know, affected his ability to stay warm. Not only good, but experienced. He'd climbed so much that he no longer felt adequately challenged climbing Everest with a Sherpa or supplemental oxygen. Uh, I hate it when they do that. Yeah. As I was researching his story, I came across this line on Wikipedia that was just so jarring to me. It was detailing David's various expeditions and just casually in the middle of it, it says, quote, quote, in 2002, Sharp went on an expedition to Cho Oyu, at 8,201 meter peak in the Himalayas with a group led by Richard Dugan and McGinnis of the Himalayan project. They did make it to the summit, but one member died from falling into a crevice. This opened up a slot on the group's trip to Everest the next year. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, the cavalier attitude about this, I think just speaks volumes about mountaineering culture, right? It's just, if you can help do, but if you can't, like a lot of times that's really acceptable. Typically, one climbs in the company of a larger expedition, but in 2006, David decided to go it alone with no oxygen. And honestly, it was just a really shitty idea. Yeah, you're he right. Planned. It's really hard. It is hard. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, a lot of times the families do seem to kind of understand that like this is definitely a risk that the person accepted and undertook. So I do think that as far as straying into victim blaming we have a little more leeway onto this because even the family is kind of like well you know um but fuck it's rough so david planned a no bells and whistles solo climb but the company that he booked with did group him with about a dozen or so other solo climbers which is an important distinction he wasn't totally alone but he was not part of an intentional group with a leader in a sense of group cohesion he was really just raw dog in this mountain, honestly. He had no Sherpa, no formal group, almost no oxygen. He brought enough oxygen for like eight to ten hours and was only going to use it if there was an emergency. And no radio. 
it almost seemed like a suicide mission. And there was a little bit of speculation later that maybe that's what it was. It was so ill-advised. Nobody knows for sure if David actually summited. He set out to attempt it without telling any of the people that he was even climbing with. And he disappeared amid some chaos with two other first-time American climbers who would later be found safe also disappearing. When he didn't show up at camp, no one was that worried. He was a really experienced climber. And he had been known to bail on some attempts that turned out to be too risky before. So it's not that likely he was going to get in over his head. He had demonstrated good judgment before, so people figured he probably had this. He didn't, though. In reality, he had sat down next to the man that people call Green Boots with his arms wrapped around his knees. Various climbers had passed him both ascending and descending. Some had offered assistance, some had not. We're going to get into that more in a minute because I want to quote some stuff from this one article. Um, some people thought he was already dead. Some realized he was only dying. A Turkish group passed him a few times as they dealt with their own personal set of crises. They tried to de-ice his mask so he could breathe and give him a drink, but his lo- his limbs had already begun to freeze solid. Another group passed him, shining a flashlight in his eyes and yelling at him to get up, but he was beyond consciousness by then. So I want to read you a few excerpts about all this from a 2007... If I could talk uh, <laughs> as a podcaster, it would be cool. From a 2006 Washington Post article called On Top of the World But Abandoned There. It's just, it's too powerful to summarize. So, quote, Around 11.10 p.m., while many in the camp slept, on the mountain's highest reaches, another group began its summit push. Mark Woodward, a guide for Himalayan experience, was escorting a camera crew filming fellow New Zealander Mark Inglis's bid to become the first double amputee to reach the summit. Shortly before 1 a.m., at about 27,760 feet, the group reached a rock alcove where Woodward knew they would find, quote, Green Boots, the frozen Indian climber who died there 10 years earlier. Woodward turned to warn a client when he got a shock. There was a second pair of boots protruding from the cave. In the glare of his headlamp, Woodward could see a man, still clipped into the red and blue guide rope, sitting to the right of the dead Indian, his arms wrapped around his knees. He had no oxygen mask on, and ice crystals had formed on his closed eyelashes. Cameraman Mark Waitu yelled at him to get moving, but there was no response. The poor guy's stuffed, Woodward thought, believing the man was in a hypothermic coma and beyond help. No one radioed down to expedition leader Russell Bryce about a rescue. After pausing just long enough to unclip the rope, pass sharp, and clip back in, the group trudged on. About 20 minutes later, a group of Turkish climbers from Middle East Technical University's Mountaineering Club reached the alcove and also saw Sharp. The group Sherpa, Lapka, urged the climber to get up and keep moving. Sharp did not speak, but waved them off, end quote. Later in the day, someone again tried to help. Quote, Sharp was unconscious and shivering violently, his teeth clenched. His nose had already turned to deep black, his cheeks and lips becoming that way. He was hatless and without glasses or goggles, wearing just a thin pair of light blue woolen gloves. When the Turks had seen Sharp, he was still fully clothed. Chaya could see his crooked fingers were frozen solid. Sharp's knees were drawn up in front of him. In Sharp's pack, Chaya found only one oxygen bottle, the gauge on empty. Dorji had attempted to give the man oxygen, but there was no response. There's nothing you can do, Max, Bryce said. Bryce reminded Chaya that he only had about 90 minutes worth of oxygen left. All of his Sherpas were helping clients down the mountain, and there weren't enough people to carry an unconscious man down tricky passes of ice and loose scree. For nearly an hour, Chaya sat on a rock a few feet from Sharp, crying and pleading into the radio. Down at the advanced base camp, climbers clustered around the radios and wept. 
Finally, Chaya and Dorji got up to leave. Chaya, a Greek Orthodox Christian, stood by the dying man and began reciting the Lord's Prayer in French. Finishing, Chaya made the sign of the cross, and he and Dorji walked away. Mm. And as bad a shape as David was in, and as many times as he had already been taken for dead, he wasn't. Quote, when the Turkish team descending now encountered Sharp again, it was already in rescue mode. A team member stricken with acute altitude sickness was being evacuated. Another climber also descending from the summit found Sharp in what appeared to be a hypothermic coma. She and her Sherpa Nima tried to hook one of their own precious oxygen bottles to Sharp's regulator, but the device did not work. They scanned the man's clothing for something that might tell them which expedition he was with, hoping they could alert his team to mount a rescue, but found nothing. After a team leader radioed base camp with an unidentified climber's condition and location, the group moved on. Furbatashi, Bryce's chief Sherpa, was descending with some others around 11.45 a.m. and was wearing a video camera on his helmet. Bending toward the shivering man, he asked his name. Whether because of the rising temperature or the oxygen Dorji had given him, Sharp was able to respond. My name is David Sharp, he said according to some accounts. I'm with Asian Trekking and I just want to sleep. Mm. The Sherpas administered oxygen and tried to get Sharp to his feet, but he kept collapsing. They shifted Sharp a few feet into the sun and then headed down the mountain. David did die, and his body would remain in plain sight for about another year before being covered. The way it became a public opinion nightmare is that two weeks later, an Australian man named Lincoln ended up in a similar situation. He was basically stranded, almost dead, exposed to the elements overnight, but he was ultimately able to be rescued alive. Some people in the climbing community thought it was just disgusting that the roughly 40 climbers who'd passed him were told to leave him there and continue their climbs. But his own mom didn't agree saying, quote, your only responsibility is to save yourself, not to try to save anyone else. Wow. Yeah. So after all that, if you do reach the top, it's a miserable place to be up there. The summit is not pleasant. Temperatures can reach 160 degrees below zero. The weeks of climbing at that point have taken a serious toll on your body. And now it is time for the hardest part. An insider article said, quote, typical athletes are building up to game day. They're mentally tougher and body stronger and more energized. Whereas in mountaineering on summit day, your muscles have atrophied. You have insomnia, you're exhausted, which kind of sounds a lot like labor, honestly. Right. By the time you get to the hard part, you're wiped. So Matthew that we talked about earlier, who had the murder cleats, said, quote, I went into the climb imagining that dying at the top of Everest would be quite a tranquil end should the worst happen, because the oxygen is so low you'd just fade out. But no, the summit is so windy and hostile, it's simply not a nice place to be. It is extreme. You feel a long way from help and nobody is going to rescue you. The wind adds so much suspense, I can only liken it to the sound of a horror movie. I just don't see why this is so appealing to so many people. Well, we're about to get into that. (laughs) A record-holding female Sherpa talked about the irrationality that can also set in at that altitude, saying, quote, their life is in our hands and we must protect them from their own insanity. It's very common to encounter climbers at the top of the summit who are removing their clothes and hallucinating. And you have to hope that you've rationed your energy appropriately, because now that you've reached the top, you still have to get back down. Which, you know, it's probably better than getting up, but it is not easy. And Shauna, with the broken leg boyfriend, said, quote, That's why some climbers sit down and never get back up. As expensive and miserable as it is, Everest is becoming incredibly overcrowded and commercialized. Oh, I'm sure. 
Yeah. By the way, I'm so sorry my voice is going. It's okay. <laughs> We're almost done. Um, sorry to everybody listening. The culture around mountaineering is continuing to evolve. After David Sharp's death, Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to ever summit Everest, said, quote, I think the whole attitude towards climbing Mount Everest has become rather horrifying. The people just want to get to the top. It was wrong if there was a man suffering altitude problems and was huddled under a rock to just lift your hat, say good morning, and pass on by. They don't give a damn for anybody else who might be in distress, and it doesn't impress me at all that they leave someone lying under a rock to die. It's so toxic. Yep. So why do it? Bragging rights, proving a point, purely for the hell of it, the thrill of succeeding. One sports psychology researcher who has interviewed a lot of mountaineers to understand exactly this, um, he feels that people don't get it right. A lot of people think it's an adrenaline thing, but he says that the duration and slog of an Everest climb, it's not actually very adrenaline-y. It's just more... It's ama- It's just not that. Once If you've done it, he says, you know, that's just not even the deal. He says it's about exerting control. And what he's found is, quote, to demonstrate that I have influence over my life, I might go into an environment that is incredibly difficult to control, like the high mountains. He adds, quote, the emotional anxiety of everyday life is confusing, ambiguous, and diffuse, and you don't know the source of it. In the mountains, the emotion is fear, and the source is clear. If I fall, I die. In the same article, another researcher said that a lot of the climbers he's interviewed literally just want to escape their lives, saying, quote, In some cases, climbers just want to get away from home and responsibilities. Let the mother take care of the son that's sick or deal with little Johnny who got in trouble at school. And that has to be the most extreme dad's been pooping for an hour to get out of here. I've ever seen in my life. Despite it all, people who have reached the top usually report a euphoria that almost can't be described. For some people, it's worth it. For some people, it's not. Can you imagine going through all of that and then just being disappointed? No. One former climber who lost his nose and a bunch of other ancillary body parts on Everest said, quote, My view has changed on this fairly dramatically. If you don't have anyone who cares about you or is dependent on you, if you have no friends or colleagues, and if you're willing to put a single round in the chamber of a revolver and put it in your mouth and pull the trigger, then yeah, it's a pretty good idea to climb Everest. Wow. Yeah. Paul, the 11-year-old whose mom died after attempting to climb without oxygen, said, quote, I don't think science can really explain why people want to climb these mountains. In the end, the whole reason my mother climbed was because she had to. And in the end, attempting this insane feat takes money, dedication. I mean, nuts bigger than Iman McIntyre's. I'll give him that much. Yeah. And help. A lot of help. Cami uh, Rita, the record holder for the number of times summoning Everest, pointed out in an interview something that I think can't be overstated and that I think that we should close with because I don't think this is talked about nearly enough. Quote, The Sherpas make their way, fixing the ropes, and the foreigners give interviews saying Everest is easier, or they talk about their courage, but they forget the contribution of the Sherpa. Sherpas have struggled a lot to make it happen. We suffer. Yeah. And that's our episode. Wow, that was so good. (laughs) I hope so. I want a Sherpa documentary. (laughs) Um, Well, there is a documentary about the Everest brawl. I'll have to look. What's it called? Um, let me look. I think it's called Higher Tension. Well, let me check. Well, there's also a documentary called Sherpa. Yeah, it's called High Tension. And uh, it was like a film festival kind of thing, but you can still find it. Awesome. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, you should. 
That was so good. I'm glad you liked it. So good. I've been waiting for an Everest for a while. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of stories. um, A lot of stories. There, there is so much content about Everest. It is hard to even know where to begin in researching. So, if you guys want more, let me know, and I will gladly dive back into that for you and uh, find some stuff. We definitely need some disaster relief. Let's do it. All right, you go first. Okay. That way you can rest your voice. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to go the sentimental route. Um, We had my daughter's birthday party late, like two months late. Uh, It was just kind of one thing after another with scheduling mostly. But it was the first time that my mom's seven grandkids have ever been in one place before. That's so awesome. Yeah. So we got some pictures um, of all seven kids together for the first time, you know, there's some, oh boy, complicated family history there that I couldn't even begin to get into, but it, it's, it's more momentous than it normally would be. Um, I guess I probably should have put some thought into how deep I was going to get into that, but let's just say it's a bigger deal than it sounds like. It's actually a huge deal. Um, and it was very worth the planning and money and everything to went to a go-karting place to get to, um, spend that time with most of the people that I love the most and see people together. And I you know it really warmed my heart. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> What's yours? Mine's popcorn. Absolutely, dude. So I heard about this on the radio and I was like, you know, you just not heard of popcorn for the first time. No. Have you? I heard about the Jonas Brothers popcorn. I, I have not. Heard I couldn't of this. even name you a Jonas Brothers song. I couldn't either. Anyways, um, it's called Rob's Backstage Popcorn, and I guess like the Jonas Brothers like really love this popcorn, and you know here we are now um, with Rob's Backstage Popcorn, and he, each Jonas Brothers has like a different flavor. But he also did one called Mumbai Mumbai Nights for Priyanka. It is so fucking good. I don't, I can't even explain it. Like, really? Where do you find it? You can get it at Walmart. Wow, I've never heard of it. Yeah, so usually it's like if you're going to the chip aisle, like where at my Walmart, it's like in the middle, like it's its own little like kiosk type thing. Really? But the Mumbai Nights one is like, I feel like it could be a little bit spicier, but it's perfect. And like, Ava and I will sit there and eat like a whole bag ourselves. Oh my goodness. It's so good. Let me see. Hold on. I might crunch a little bit. I was actually eating some up here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got like red pepper, onion, garlic, turmeric, carrot. So fucking good. It's gluten-free. I don't know if anybody has gluten allergies, but... I'm sure somebody does. I might have to try that. Um, yeah. Rob's Backstage Popcorn. popcorn. Um, but yeah, Mumbai Nights. That's the one. That's the only one I've tried. I'm going to go back and get the rest, but it's probably one of my favorite popcorns that I've ever, like, tried. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely going to... I'm looking at... I like the packaging. I looked it It's up. really pretty, huh? Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to see if my Walmart Please get some and then let me know. 
Okay, I'll probably get a boring flavor. But I well, will. if you get a boring flavor, let me know because I want to try. Like, I want to go back and try all of them because this one was just so good. Hmm. Okay, I'll report back. See, I, I, I know nothing about the Jonas Brothers, but here I am eating the popcorn. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't either, but I'm going to try their popcorn as well. <laughs> well, um, I can't wait till talk to you again. Until next week, sweet dreams or no dreams. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us, too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.